So I am reading from uh, Matthew, and we're going to cover chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through. Let's see here. I ordered this brand new Bible, and this pages are sticky. We're going to be going all the way through uh, verse 17. So follow along in your device, in your Bible, or on the screen if you'd like. It says, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus, had the, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come to heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came to, into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and her fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all of the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Go ahead and have your seat. I have been uh, loving this study through Matthew. In particular, we finished up the Sermon on the Mount last week, and it was wonderful. And now we get to dive into um, a couple chapters of not Jesus' teaching, but recounts, uh, accounts rather, um, Matthew recounting what Jesus did uh, in between the different times that he taught. And so today we're going to observe some miracles as we just read. But I want to start, start out by saying that one of my absolute favorite things to do in the world I'm going to let you in a little bit to my world here, um, is to learn something new. Yes, I am a nerd, okay? I'm just going to admit it. Any other nerds in here? People that like learning? Awesome. I love that. Fellow nerds invited. Okay. Um, but this passion of mine, it manifests itself in very different ways. Um, and some of those ways, sometimes learning requires these like very difficult and complex learning curves. I particularly enjoy things that stretch me physically, mentally, relationally. Um, and one example of that in my recent life was this uh, sort of deep dive that I've done into the game of disc golf. Any disc golfers in here? All right, so some of you will be able to relate to this practically. Uh, some of you will have to take my word for it. 
But in 2019, our very own Zach Schweitzer, who's in here, he invited me to play a round of disc golf. And my initial response was, no, thank you. Uh, and my reasoning was that I didn't um, think that there was really much to the game, especially because I already played and was pretty decent at real golf. But I wanted to get to know Zach. I wanted to get to know Zach. And I was pretty competent with a Frisbee, so I accepted the invitation. And then on the very first hole um, of my career in disc golf, I learned something quickly. My inclinations about disc golf were wildly incorrect. So we go to one of the local disc golf courses, and Zach's giving me a few pointers. He's telling me how to hold the disc and different techniques. And then he's like, here, I'm going to throw first. And he proceeds to throw a disc to a basket that's 350 feet away, 300 to 350 feet away, and he hits the outside of the cage. He almost aces his very first shot in front of me. This was not his first shot. He had been playing a lot, but it was his first shot in front of me. And I thought, it's going to be easy. (laughs) It's going to be easy, right? Like, if he could do that, I mean, I can throw a Frisbee, right? So what do I do? I grab a disc, and I proceed to do my best And I throw it, and it was horrible. (laughs) I can't even begin to describe how differently it went uh, in actuality compared to how it went in my head. Little did I know, because of that, that I was about to become what they call a disc golfer, okay? And I have not turned back since. Much like anything that is very technical, there is an advantage, just like there is in disc golf, to having an expert eye watching you, coaching you, correcting your faulty technique. Disc golf is similar to things, to many things in this way. There is a plethora of information on the internet that can teach you um, technique. There's YouTube videos about the technical data around throwing different, different throwing styles or different discs. There's even digital coaching programs that you can get online. You can actually become a very knowledgeable disc golfer without ever playing or learning from another person. But there's a reality that everyone eventually faces. At some point you, in order to improve, you're going to need someone with more experience to teach you what they know, right? In every area of life, you are self-limited to some degree. And if you intend to grow past those self-limitations, you're gonna need an expert to help you. Now here's what I mean. In education, for example, we have a section of people who are called teachers or professors, and what they do is they guide our learning, right? The good ones do a great job of inspiring our learning even. How about in the health sector? We have doctors and nurses and therapists. There's a long list of people who are designed and trained, and, 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 they, and they are trying to help us with our health. Or the finance world, we have financial planners, we have insurance agents, we have all kinds of people who can help us grow and tighten up our financial situation. Even in law, lawyers, judges, in every major profession, there are experts who govern their trade and they teach their expertise. And there's a commonality amongst all of these professionals. After completing formal education, they have to do some type of apprenticeship or internship or fellowship. And the reason for that is, it's a good one, that there is a level of understanding that a person can acquire from learning information, facts, and theory, but in order to achieve mastery, 
You need to practice what you've learned. But not just random practice, rather underneath the guidance of someone who knows more, someone who is an expert. In biblical times, this person um, who was an expert of religion was called a rabbi. Okay, that's a term you've probably heard, maybe not. But the rabbi was someone who have spent their entire life studying scripture, what it means, how it applies to our life. And rabbis had a very particular, they were actually known for their unique way of understanding and applying scripture. So certain rabbis would have followers who appreciated the way that they both learned, taught, and applied religion. This is what made them experts because they were experts. Other people would look to them for training. They would look to them for understanding. They would look, for the, look to them to guide them in how to learn to apply that. Now, Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. He was an expert in the faith. In fact, we see that not only was he an expert, but that he actually carried authority. In Matthew 28, 18, it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that is from the great commission. Jesus is about to wrap up his time on earth with his, with his disciples. And he says, hey, I just want you to know everything I've taught you and everything I'm going to command you to go do is because I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And so in our passage today, what we observe are these three accounts of Jesus performing miracles specifically miracles of healing. And as you can imagine, these accounts are not just random selections from the life of Jesus, right? But they're actually carefully and thoughtfully selected moments of Jesus's ministry that convey a very important and particular idea. And that idea is that Jesus was not just a wise teacher or an expert, but he has authority. Jesus has authority. Recalling the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the section we finished up last week, Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29 says this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, all of the things that he had taught, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not and as not as their teachers of the law. Now, the crowds were amazed at what Jesus had to say because of the way he taught and how he taught it. They wanted to see more. Verse A1 says, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So not only did he have authority, but people wanted more of it. And so Jesus is very wise. He's very smart. He uses this opportunity to display his authority over creation. Verses eight, or sorry, chapter eight, verses two through four says this. I want to reread it to you. It says, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't go tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer a gift of Moses, the one that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So right away, we see this encounter that Jesus has with a man with leprosy. This is a devastating disease. More on that in a moment. But the man actually begins by going and kneeling before Jesus and calls him Lord. Lord. 
That's a big deal. In this context, that is the equivalent of Yahweh, which is a holy title used by the Israelites when they talk about God. And now Matthew's primary audience, the Jewish believers, they would have known this. Looks like we have a special guest. <laughs> they would have known this, and this would have caused them to take special notice to this story, right? So uh, in the moment, it's a big deal, and the account of, Jesus or of Matthew telling this about Jesus was also a big deal. So everyone's listening intently. And this imagery in this moment, it highlights the distinct, distinction between someone who simply has knowledge and someone who has authority. Now, when you get sick, particularly in a way that you cannot remedy yourself, you will likely go to a doctor, okay? We can all acknowledge that. But when you get to the doctor, you don't walk into their office, kneel before them, and call them Lord. Do you? No. Paige would probably appreciate that, right? <laughs> Dr. Flett? No, that would be silly. You wouldn't do that. And why is that? Well, doctors, while they take measures to create a pathway for healing, they themselves cannot instantaneously heal your body. Rather, ultimately, they make a pathway for your body to regenerate itself. So if, you if you've broken a bone, for example, the doctor will set the bone, but the bone uses the natural processes of a healthy body to heal the impacted area. This is the role that doctors play. They cannot miraculously heal your body instantaneously, but if they could, then you would probably kneel at their feet and call them Lord, right? You'd be like, oh Lord, please heal me, right? That would be an appropriate response to someone who can just touch your broken bone and it's healed. This is the first clue that Matthew is giving us in this account to Jesus's authority. Jesus had done miraculous things before. His reputation had preceded him. And the leprous man we see, he believes that Jesus has the authority to heal him. He believes it. Okay, so the second clue is this. The language that the man uses, he says, Lord, if you are willing, it does not say, Lord, if you can try, or even, Lord, if you are able. It says, Lord, if you are willing. The man with leprosy believes and knows that Jesus is able, and because Jesus had the authority in the matter, he could have easily denied this man the option of being healed. But Jesus, being full of compassion, does not deny this man. He graciously heals that man in a moment, thus changing this quality, his quality of life for the remainder of his life. In a few short verses, Matthew is able to paint this picture like an artist of Jesus's authority, specifically demonstrating how Jesus applied his authority through miraculous healings. Now, this is one of the ways that Matthew uses this account. He uses it to convey the authority of Jesus, but it's not the only thing that's happening in these healing accounts. These miracles are also meant to display the nature of the kingdom of God. 
connected to the importance of what Jesus did is the significance of who he performed the miracles for. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in biblical times, leprosy was the equivalent of a death sentence. This disease would eat away at a person's nervous system. They would slowly lose sensation in parts of the body that were impacted. And eventually they would have ulcerations and, and retracting tendons and they would lose their hands and their feet. And probably the most grueling part of this disease is that it takes multiple decades to kill the person infected by it. But it's not just the physical consequences a person suffered. There were social ones too. A person with leprosy was required to intentionally dishevel their appearance, messing their hair and tearing their clothing so that it was a signal to the people around them that they had this particular condition. They had to walk around unclean, unclean, letting everybody know around them that they were sick. They were also preemptively read their burial rites. As soon as they found out and were diagnosed with leprosy, a priest would come and would read them their final rites, even though it might be decades before they actually die, because they were effectively dead to their community. Priests would often brag about the poor treatment of leprous people. This is how bad they were. They would chase them from the public square. They would throw rocks at them. They would avoid businesses near their presence. Now just imagine if Pastor Jessica did that. You were sick and she said, get out of here. Started chucking rocks at you. I'd have to fire her, okay? <laughs> She's not gonna do that though, thankfully. Matthew was very familiar with these realities, which is what made Jesus' interaction with this man so scandalous. It was such a scandalous interaction. And Matthew is very smart in including this example because he's connecting the earthly experience of this sick man with the spiritual condition of the human soul. Leprosy, with all of its medical and social consequences, is the, is the medical equivalent to the spiritual impact of sin on a person's life. You see, the Bible tells us that the impact of sin is death, and sin, like leprosy, will eat away at a person from the inside out. You see, exposed sin in this moment meant excommunication from the temple and from social life altogether. And for all of these reasons, Jesus could have, and maybe even should have, avoided contact with this man. But that's not what we see happen. Instead, Jesus moves towards the man. And he does the most shocking thing a person could do in this moment, he touches him. He touches him. The reaction from anybody watching this moment would have been a giant gasp. In Old Testament law, the only thing that was more unclean than touching a person with leprosy was to touch an already dead body. And Jesus knows this, and he knows his audience. Yet he compassionately reaches out and he touches the man. This man likely had not felt touch in a very long time. And he knows the risk 
that he's taking by approaching Jesus. He knows this risk. He knows this is, a, this is maybe a do or die moment. But his faith compels him anyways, and Jesus responds like no one else could have dared respond with compassion, with love, and a simple touch. Jesus resounded as the only person with true authority in this matter. Now, maybe if you're a skeptic, I can be a bit skeptical at times, okay? If you're a skeptic, you might have thought, um, you might have this thought rolling around your head. You're saying, okay, so Jesus knows that this man's position in society is poor, and Jesus is just trying to gain followers, right? He's just trying to get that Instagram follow. So this was a great PR move, right? This is a great PR move. His PR team is delighted in this moment. Not at all. In fact, Jesus tells the man in verse four, if you don't already know, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. The only person that Jesus wants this man to go see is the priest. And the reason he needed to do that was because the priest had to verify that he was indeed clean of leprosy and then perform a sacrifice to re-enter society. Now, eventually, yes, people are going to find out. All of a sudden, this man who has been around and has been sick is all of a sudden not sick. They're gonna go, yeah, we kind of put two and two together. This Jesus guy is doing his thing. But not until after Jesus moves on. Matthew is showing us something very important about this first account of healing. It's that Jesus walks his talk. Jesus had just got done, as we had heard, just got done preaching the sermon where he declares, I am the fulfillment of the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law, which you know, if you were here for those sermons, is summed up by this phrase, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus is the fulfillment of that, and he's exacting that fulfillment on this man, his neighbor. The kingdom of heaven has a different social economy. It has different social structures, and it has different guiding social principles than any of the other prevailing cultures in that day. The sinner and the outcast are actually welcomed into the presence of Jesus to be healed, to be forgiven. Now, there's two other accounts from the section that we uh, reference today that reinforce this beautiful reality of what Jesus is saying and what the, the author Matthew is trying to capture. Let's look at these accounts. I'm gonna read them again to you, and then we're just gonna briefly recount how they impact the kingdom of heaven or how they show the kingdom of heaven. So starting in verse five of chapter eight, it'll be on your screen again. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go and he goes and that one to come and he comes and I say to my servant, do this and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, you have, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. That's a pretty big compliment, by the way. 
I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where, they will, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed. So the centurion has this servant who's sick and he's responsible for him. And he approaches Jesus, he says, Jesus, I need you to heal my servant. And Jesus offers to come heal him, which was completely against Jewish customs, Jewish traditions. People who were of the, the Jewish faith, the Israelites, they would not go to what they would call Gentile homes. This centurion was a religious enemy. But Jesus says, shall I come? And then the centurion, very familiar with this, believed in Jesus' authority enough that he didn't even need his presence, rather simply, simply a powerful word. In verse 11, Jesus declares that Gentiles are welcome in the kingdom of heaven. And this flies in the face of what the Israelites would have believed. They were believing that a Messiah would lift them out of their oppression, out of the rule of this centurion and everything he represented. But instead, what we see here is Jesus healing this man's servant by request alone, even offering to go to his house. And they would have been disgusted by this. So frustrated. But again, what we see is this account of Jesus' healing, this time of the servant, he was establishing his authority. He was showing his authority to both Jews and Gentiles that he had the power to welcome them into this reinstated kingdom of heaven. And particularly those who believe in Jesus as Lord. And then the final account of healing mimics this same work. I'm going to read it to you again, starting in verse 14. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now, there's a note in my study Bible that says that um, Peter was not upset with Jesus for healing his mother-in-law, just so you know. <laughs> just kidding. It doesn't say that. Once again, we see Jesus has this encounter with a person who needs healing, but this time it's a woman. And most likely, because she's a mother-in-law, a woman of some age... And both of those facts would have meant that she had very little societal value, very little pull in the social circles that she's in, very little social status, yet Jesus goes to her and heals her. And Matthew records this interaction, this third interaction, these three lumped together, and they all communicate Jesus's authority, his compassion, his love, his drawing the outsider into the kingdom of heaven. And then this last little section is finished up with the account of Jesus um, having authority over demons, right? It says that he cast out demons, 
which again connects the reality of spiritual healing to physical healing. Now, this is a capstone. This little section is the capstone on a series of healings that Matthew organizes. He captures and organizes to parallel the reality of a physical brokenness to a spiritual brokenness. This is not an accident. This is by design. These examples of people who are outcast and physically broken are meant to signal to the audience, hey, there's a spiritual brokenness inside of you that only I can remedy, that only I can heal. And then Matthew crafts this beautifully kind of biographical section um, of healings and he gives it to the world and it's all to highlight the reality that Jesus had authority as he says at the end of Matthew over heaven and earth. Jesus has all the authority in heaven and on earth. So how might we respond to a passage like this? Well, Foundation Church, our church, us, we have told you this, and we're going to continue to tell you this, but we are deeply committed to forming deeply rooted disciples who practice the way of Jesus. That will demand, as we have said, deep work in community over a long period of time. So let's talk about deep work for just a moment here. We live in a society and a culture that demands the questioning of authority. And I believe that this is actually a healthy process when done properly. However, at times, questioning authority has spilled over into rejecting legitimate and proper authority. And in many ways, the deep work that we are calling each other into is learning to abide in the authority of Jesus. And so passages like this one are wonderful because they actually help us along that pathway. But we can also reject the idea of legitimate authority because we simply do not appreciate being told what to do. Anybody else? And we don't want to follow things without reason. I mean, there's lots of reasons. But passages like this, again are like trust-building passages. There are these beautiful accounts that Matthew is helping the audience who at that point in time are very skeptical of Jesus, just like you might be right now. And yet Jesus invites them to follow him, to practice his teachings, and it's for our benefit. And he has given us reason to trust in his authority. This deep work involves the process where we hear his commands in scripture and then we do our best to put them into practice. No perfection is demanded. Rather, worship, attention, obedience. And then meanwhile, God proves himself faithful to what he promised to do for us by providing and healing and meeting us where we need him to meet us, and the outcome of that is an increase in our faith. Just like Jesus was establishing his authority in those recorded moments, he's doing the same right now in our lives as we read these accounts aloud again. So the invitation to deep work in this moment is to move incrementally closer to Jesus and his authority which is over heaven and earth, over everything. 
And how do we practically submit to the authority of Jesus? I think it's pretty simple, an idea, but it is going to demand something of you. You are to hear his commands and you are to practice them in your life. Now, if you've been here with us for any amount of time, that is starting to get old sounding. And guess what? It's going to get real old. Because we are going to be a church that hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice for our benefit. It's for our own good. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Your salvation can be secure, but you can be ignoring the commands of Jesus. You can be rejecting the way he's called us to live now. And as a result, you will not thrive. But instead, if you listen to the words of Jesus, you hear his words, you organize your life around it, you will be like a wise man, as he says at the end of chapter seven, who built his life on the rock. So I'm gonna wrap up, the band can come up in just a moment, we're gonna take communion together, but I wanna take a moment to pray first. I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't take this opportunity to talk about prayer for healing. Prayer for healing. We see in these accounts people who have suffered various afflictions for undefined amounts of time. Could be a long time, could be a short time. There is a lot going on in these accounts. And Jesus healed each of them because he had the authority to do so. So whatever it is that you need to be healed of today, I cannot promise that you, will, that you will be healed. I cannot promise that. However, I can promise that God is able to heal you and that we are commanded to ask for it, to pray for it, to request the healing. That is something that we are commanded to do. I'm gonna read you James chapter five, verses 13 through 15. It says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Yes, I'm excited too. <laughs> and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you too may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So be it physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing, whatever it may be, we are meant to pray and ask for these things. And again, just to be clear, I am not promising that you will be healed. I'm promising you that we serve a God who can heal you who has the authority to do so and has commanded us to ask. And so if we don't hear his commands and then put them into practice, who are we? So that's what we're gonna do today. In fact, right over here, Mike and Paige will be available to pray with you if you want to be prayed for. They are both trustworthy, wonderful people that will pray for you and they will do the requesting with you and for you and on your behalf. And that's okay if you're not comfortable to go to them, simply pray, ask God, God, I need healing in this space. 
So we're gonna do that in just a moment, but before we do that, I like to close our time with observing communion. So on your chair, you have this little cup of juice with a wafer on top. And here's what's cool and spectacular about communion. It's a tangible reminder of the goodness of what God did. In that passage I read to you about James, it talks about praying for somebody and anointing them with oil. And you're like, okay. If you're familiar with that, you're like, I've heard that before, but I'm not really sure what that means. Well, in that particular day, they used oil as a remedy for scratches and cuts, and it just had a very like medicinal property to it. Now, of course, now we have other medicines, right? If you, if you get sick, you go to the doctor and they give you a type of medicine. So we've moved on, maybe, in some cases, I don't know, certain oils still, still seem to have good properties, but we've kind of moved on from there. But more importantly in our tradition, they're a symbol of something. They're a symbol, a tangible thing that you can touch, whether it be oil or a cream or whatever, you can feel that, you can see that, and it represents the reality that God has the authority to heal you. That's why they talk about oil in this passage. Well, communion, this is not oil, this is juice in a cracker or a wafer, is similar in that way. It's a symbol, it's something that we can taste, touch, and see, and feel that reminds us of God's grace and how good He is in our life. And so we do this to remember him just as he commanded. So in just a moment, I'm gonna pray. And for the Christ follower, this is a wonderful moment because it helps us remember the goodness of God. And for the non-Christ follower, you're welcome to partake it as well. It's just a cheap wafer and not very good juice though. But still, you're welcome. But for the Christ follower, it's significant. It means something. So I'm gonna pray over these elements and then I'm gonna invite you to take them and we're gonna sing. And if you want to be prayed for, please, please visit Mike and Paige. Find somebody else you feel more comfortable with, but don't miss this opportunity to be prayed for, for healing. So Jesus, we come to you and we thank you so much for this opportunity, this gift of communion, God, where we get to taste, touch, see, smell, something that represents the bigger thing, your gracious love, restoring us, healing us from our sickness, from our sin on the cross. And now we remember that and we celebrate that with this moment. And God, for the people who need healing, God, I pray that they would be healed, not just of their ailments, but of their sin. God, that we would ask for those healings. Take seriously your command to ask for them. And God, if you see fit, God, you will heal those things. We do this in the name of Jesus, amen. So go ahead and receive the communion elements and then please stand and sing with